Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Well, hello, everybody. This is Robert J. Morgan. I've got some exciting news I've been waiting a long time to tell you. My new book, The 50 Final Events in World History, is going to be released on April the 12th. This is my study of the book of Revelation, which is the Bible's final words on Earth's last days. I've been studying the book of Revelation for, well, half a century. And I've sought to make this book very accessible to every reader. We have some tremendous difficulties facing us in the world today. No sooner do we get out of the COVID crisis than we go into the brutality that we see in Eastern Europe. And we've got to be able to make sense in some way of what's happening. And I don't think we can do that outside of the framework of biblical prophecy And we can't really understand biblical prophecy without a grasp of the book of Revelation. So today, I'd like to ask you to consider pre-ordering this book from your favorite book distributor. It's amazing how much pre-orders help in ensuring the success of the launch of a book. And so if you would like to, uh, then just go to whatever book distributor you get your books from. It could be a local bookstore, or it could be Christian Book Distributors, or Amazon, or Barnes & Noble, wherever it is, and just pre-order this book. It will be out in April, The 50 Final Events in World History. And to supplement this book, I want to begin today a series of podcasts on the subject of the signs of the times, the end of the age, and the return of Christ. I'm going to call this series Living on the Precipice of Prophecy, because I believe that's exactly where we are. And the opening study today is, can we know when Jesus is coming again? Do you know there is a beautiful 15,000 square foot home in the Bronx in New York City? It's a mansion. It recently sold for millions upon millions of dollars. It sits on a high hill with beautiful views of New York City, and it was built in 1928 by a woman named Genevieve Griscom, G-R-I-S-C-O-M, Genevieve Griscom. She was the wife of a very wealthy executive. I've taken a virtual tour of this house, and I'm going to be in New York soon, and I want to go by if I can and see where the location is. This mansion is constructed of beautiful stonework two feet thick with blue shutters and a red-tiled roof. It has a very large atrium or sunroom along with a fabulous upstairs patio. The grand staircase is a beautiful combination of yellow mosaic tile and rich wood paneling encircling an incredible chandelier. The ceilings remind you of the Sistine Chapel, and the floors are made of marble imported from the Vatican. The mansion has 16 large main rooms, and it even had a grand pipe organ. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. Genevieve Griscom never lived in this house. She lived instead in a little shed nearby. 
It was a shack that was heated by a stove, and as far as I know, she never spent a single night in the mansion. She died in 1958 at the age of 90, living in that little shed near the mansion. Now, the reason she lived in the shed instead of in the mansion is that she built this house exclusively for Jesus to use when he came again. Griscom was a member of a cult, and she believed that Jesus was coming again and would need a place to live. She assumed that he would come to rule the world and that he would do it from New York City, which she considered the greatest city on earth, and so she built this mansion for him. She herself consented uh, to live in a little shack nearby, although every day she entered the house and played the pipe organ for an hour. Well, the property has since changed hands. Someone else is living there now, but it was originally a house built for Jesus when he came again. Well, the Bible says we should be preparing for our Lord's return, but not in that way. Throughout history, many people have done outrageous things and taught distorted opinions about the end of the age simply because they didn't study the Bible very carefully. And this has been going on for a very long time. For 2,000 years, people have been asking, where is this coming he promised? So as the years have passed, there's been speculation, there's been ideas and date settings and odd opinions, but they're not necessarily biblical ones, and we need to stick to the facts of the Bible. So here's the question, can we know when Jesus is coming? And I've got several answers to that question. The first one is that we cannot determine dates from the Bible. We should remember that God has a calendar, but we do not have access to that calendar. The scripture does not give us dates. We have a number of powerful sermons from the lips of Jesus, and one of them speaks to this. It was his message on the signs of the times and the end of the age, which we call the Olivet Discourse, because he spoke these words to his disciples on Mount Olivet, or on the Mount of Olives. This is the ridge to the east of Jerusalem. I've been there a number of times. I always, when I lead groups there, preach on that ridge with its fabulous views of the city and of the Temple Mount. But during the final week of his life, when Jesus was in and out of the temple, he went over to that mountain. It was on Tuesday of Passion Week. They left the temple. He left with his disciples. They went down the Kidron Valley, up the other side, and he asked, uh, the, the disciples asked him about what was going to take place in the future. In Matthew 24, the message is in Matthew 24 and 25. In Matthew 24, verse 3, they said, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? And so in response, Jesus gave them his sermon on the signs of the times, Matthew 24 and 25. And I want to show you one verse in particular, Matthew 24 and verse 36. Jesus said, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, this is an incredible verse. The New American Commentary says this verse is one of the most astonishing and significant of all of Jesus' sayings, both for eschatology and for Christology. If I understand this correctly, when the Lord Jesus came to earth as a human, he temporarily yielded some of his divine prerogatives and rights. 
at the time that he spoke those words in his humanity, not even he knew the termination dates on God's calendar for world history. In fact, two days later, think about this, two days after he said those words, on Thursday night, Jesus had his final meal with his disciples before the crucifixion. We call it the Last Supper. His crucifixion would occur on Friday. So on the night before, he said in John's Gospel, chapter 14, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Now, if I understand all of this correctly, even as he spoke those words on Thursday night to the disciples, telling them that he was going to come again for them, at that particular moment of time, not even he himself knew what the date of that return would be. He didn't know if his kingdom would begin two weeks later, or a month later, or a year later, or 2,000 years later. And yet he had total confidence in the Father's timetable. He wasn't concerned about it because he knew the Father had all of that taken care of, but he himself in his humanity at that moment did not know the particular day. Now, I think we can safely assume that when Jesus returned to the throne of majesty, he repossessed his omniscience and all of its fullness and understood everything clearly. I think if uh, you were to ask him right now, he would say, well, I do know the date, but I can't tell you. But during his earthly ministry, Jesus said, not the angels, nor even the Son of Man, God alone knows that calendar. And so on Tuesday, Jesus gave his message on the Mount of Olives. On Thursday night, he met with his disciples in the upper room, and he told them he was going to come again. And on Friday, he was crucified. And then on Sunday, he rose again. Forty days later, Jesus took his disciples back to that evocative spot on the Mount of Olives. And it says in Acts chapter 1, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and into the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, it says, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the skies he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you up into heaven, will come back again in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, if the disciples had said, when will that be? The angels, I think, would have said, we do not know. God the Father has established the specific time and date when all of the prophecies will be fulfilled he alone has the authority and he alone has the knowledge that times and seasons are under his jurisdiction. The exact date for the return of Christ is set, but we do not know the year, the month, the day, the hour for that matter. We don't know the millennium. 
This is the closest kept secret in history. It is the top secret information for the eyes of the Godhead only. It is the most godly kept secret in the universe is when Jesus is going to come again. The exact day and hour of his coming, we cannot determine it from Scripture. But here is the second thing. We can deduce clues from the headlines. I want to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. Here Jesus is speaking to his critics, the skeptics, and it says in Matthew 16, verses 1, 2, and 3, The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Jesus replied, When evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the skies red. And in the morning today, it will be stormy for the sky is overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. When I was growing up, my mother would quote a little verse that she sometimes used when she looked up in the sky, if I can remember it. She said, red skies in the morning, sailors take warning. Red skies at the night, sailors delight. In other words, just by looking into the sky, you can determine something about the weather. And Jesus said, you may not be able to know the days or the hours, but you should be able to determine something about the times and the seasons. So we cannot set dates from Scripture, but we can see signs from the times in which we're living. Now to me, Revelation 6 through 18 is very instructive. I go through these chapters very carefully in my book, The 50 Final Events in World History. These chapters give us the timeline for the tribulation. The tribulation is a seven-year period of world upheaval and distress that will precede the return of Christ. It all begins when something happens in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1, and uh, chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And this is when Jesus opens the first of seven seals that are sealing a scroll, like a, a, a wax seal over a letter. He opens the first one, and that launches the tribulation. So he says in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, John the apostle says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse, its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. I don't have time to give the biblical background here, but I believe this rider on the white horse is a powerful dictator who is determined to grasp the reins of the governments of all of the world, and later this figure will be seen as the Antichrist. This coming world ruler will attempt to unite the world under a single authority, a one-world government, he will go out like a ruler bent on conquest, and he will begin attempting to unite the world under his authority, and that is going to trigger the tribulation period, the seven years preceding the return of Christ. In other words, something is going to happen that will prod the world toward ultimate globalism. It will prepare the world for a global leader. Now, it's my persuasion that some event or series of events is going to strike this planet like never before, pushing the planet into that direction.
You know, as I researched this study, I discovered something very interesting. It's not so much Christians who are talking about the end of the world. It's not so much churches. There's not all that many sermons about the end times of the last days and a lot of pulpits. But do you know who is talking about these things? It's the scientists. They are very aware that the world has never been in a place in which there were more possibilities for global cataclysm that would threaten all of humanity, and these potential threats are creating early calls for a global government structure to respond to them. I want to give you an example here. There was an article recently uh, published by the London School of Economics and Political Science. The article was written by Dr. Arvind Ashta, a senior professor at the Burgundy School of Business in Dijon, France. And the article was entitled, It is Time to Seriously Consider the Advantages of a World Federal Government. Dr. Ashta said, in a previous article, I proposed a world federal government. There are at least seven reasons why we should now consider moving toward a world federal government. And he listed seven reasons. I'm not going to give you all of them because of the time, but they are all plausible. They make sense in a certain um, manner of speaking, especially now more than ever. But notice how Dr. Ashta ended his article. He said in his closing paragraph, major innovations in governance are often based on a shift in requirements triggered by a particular event. He said, if the world has not already moved to global federalism today, it is in part because there has yet to be a trigger for pushing states in this direction. In other words, he says sooner or later, it's going to be necessary for the world to be under a single government. And the reason that we aren't already there is because a cataclysm strong enough to push the world in that direction has not yet come. There are scholars and professors and statesmen around the world laying the academic and the philosophical foundation for a one world government and warning about a trigger event that will drive the world in that direction. What could this trigger event be? Well, I'm working on this message during the brutal and evil, relentless, unyielding, godless invasion of Ukraine. And I made the mistake of watching the latest news last night before going to bed and had nightmares and bad dreams all night. I don't know of anything that has made me so sick in my life as I watched it. Many of us feel that a confluence of events could occur that would precipitate the beginning of the end if this conflict were to spread beyond Ukraine, if it was to pull in Europe, if it was to trigger a series of dominoes that would lead to World War III. Something like that could trigger these events happening. But this triggering event could also be the rapture of the church. If the rapture of the church does indeed precede the tribulation, as many people think, the sudden disappearance of maybe two billion people would stun the world and propel it into a global crisis unlike anything ever experienced. I think that many, many people would uh, assume that some kind of alien invasion had taken place. How would you explain the sudden total evaporation, the vanishing of maybe 25% of the population of the earth? That could trigger 
the movement toward a one world government, or it could be another pandemic. COVID-19, as bad as it was, did not have the kind of mortality rate that some of the pandemics in the past have had. And we do not know what virus could next escape from a lab somewhere, or could descend on us from a bat or a rat or a chicken. And a pandemic with a much higher death rate could drive the world to the very brink. Uh, it might be that a world economic collapse would trigger the movement towards a one world government. I've been wondering for some time when the economy of the world will begin collapsing like a house of cards. Things I think are just economically all around the world so interconnected that when one thing began unraveling, it would be like the Great Depression. The whole house of cards would come tumbling down. Or the triggering event could be a threat from a natural world disaster. What I mean by that are things in the natural world, such as asteroids or comets or supervolcanic eruptions, stellar explosions, other natural risks. They may sound alarmist, and maybe they are, but I'm not just dreaming them up. There are scientists who are studying these things every day and who are worried about a planet-altering natural event that could perhaps lead to the extinction of humanity. There are papers and books and monographs written about this, millions and billions of dollars of study going into these things. Along with everything else, some scientists are warning about the danger of a geomagnetic storm. I want to take a moment to discuss this because I found it so interesting. There is an Australian scholar and researcher named Dr. Russell Blong, B-L-O-N-G, who wrote an article that I read on four global catastrophic risks that he is concerned about. And it was a rather technical article, but here's one paragraph that I want to try to read to you. He said, space weather, space weather describes variations in the sun, solar wind, magnetic sphere, ionosphere, and thermosphere. He said, while a range of space weather events could produce global catastrophic risks, the most important are coronal mass ejections. He calls them coronal mass ejections, which are massive high-speed bursts of charged particles and magnetic fields ejected from the sun. I think he is talking about what we commonly call solar flares. He went on to say, a severe geomagnetic storm, also known as a space weather event, on a scale of those that were recorded or observed in September of 1859 or in May of 1921 would be likely to instantaneously disrupt modern life across a large area with failure of the electrical grid. This failure would also affect water supply, sanitation, heating, cooling, medical services, and communications, including mobile phones, internet services, and financial services. Dr. Blong said, it is difficult to imagine that any urban society would maintain its current level of law, order, social justice, and harmony for more than a few days in the aftermath of a geomagnetic storm. In other words, if I understand this correctly, he is saying if there was an eruption of solar flares from the sun, 
something similar to what happened in the 1850s or the 1920s, it could result in the loss of all of our electronic grids, all of our electricity, the instantaneous interruption of our internet, and it could take the world back to the Stone Age. And of course, that kind of disruption doesn't have to come from space. We're living in a world of cyber terrorism and cyber warfare. The world has never been so thoroughly dependent on technology. And what would happen if suddenly that technology crashed all over the world? Now, another threat that we've been living with for a long time are these weapons of mass destruction. I'm old enough to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. We stopped our studies in school that day and sat at our desks and listened to the radio with some alarm. I remember my teacher standing there looking out the window with grave concern on her face as the Soviet ships moved toward the Cuban blockade and the world was only minutes from World War III. Well, the weapons today are much worse than ever, and these hypersonic missiles can deliver them to us right into our cities from enemies before we even have time to react. So all of these could be trigger events. There is a book called The Precipice, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity by Dr. Toby Ord, O-R-D. He wrote, quote, safeguarding humanity's future is the defining challenge of our time. For we stand at a crucial moment in the history of our species. Fueled by technological progress, our power has grown so great that for the first time in humanity's long history, we have the capacity to destroy ourselves, severing our entire future and everything we could become. And the same concern was in an article that I read recently from the magazine Wired, which says the world has reached a point for the first time in history in which we could, in just moments, annihilate ourselves, every human being. Let me quote from this article. The magazine said, these extreme risks, high impact threats with global reach, define our time. They range from global tragedies such as COVID-19 to existential risk that could lead to human extinction. By our estimates, weighing the different probabilities of events ranging from asteroid impact to nuclear war, the likelihood of the world experiencing an existential catastrophe over the next 100 years is one in six. And the magazine went on to say, that is exactly the odds of what we call Russian roulette. This is clearly unsustainable, said the magazine. We cannot survive many centuries operating at a level of extreme risk like this. And as technology accelerates, there is strong reason to believe that the risk will only continue to grow. I've read reports in which people are tremendously concerned about the threats of artificial intelligence and the dark web and cryptocurrency. So there are many things today that are very dangerous to the totality of human history and the tribulation could well be triggered by any one of those dangers or a combination of them or perhaps by factors we don't even know about. The Lord's return is very likely just as close as the next global disaster. 
So if you want to know when the Lord is coming, then the Bible does not give us the day or the hour, but we can look at the headlines and begin to see the signs of the times, and we can ascertain where history is going. But there's one final thing to consider. When our Lord spoke to the disciples on the Mount of Olives in Acts chapter 2, he told them these things, but he didn't expect them to be afraid or anxious or worried or distraught. He said, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And he gave us a job to do. We're to occupy until he comes. We don't need to build a mansion in the Bronx for Christ to inhabit, but we should be building a church to indwell. Despite all of the dangers of our age, nothing is more exciting than living in prophetic times as ambassadors for Christ in these last days. Honestly, I think it's a privilege to be chosen to live in this generation, to see what we are seeing and experience what we're experiencing, and to be representatives of Jesus Christ on the precipice of history, and to take his gospel and to know that God can use us to change many lives. In closing, I just read about a 17-year-old boy in Pakistan, which is a heavily Islamic country. This boy, the news release called him Rehan for security reasons, it wasn't his real name, but Rehan, was working at a roadside restaurant, and it was a place in Pakistan where trucks would stop, and there was one truck driver who stopped there whenever he was in the area, and this man was different from all of the others. He treated Rehan so nicely that one day the teenager just asked him, why do you treat me so nicely? What's so different about you? And the man gave Rehan an audio Bible. Rehan went home and he began listening to it. He was so intrigued that he listened to it over and over again and began talking to the truck driver every time the man stopped and soon the boy came to Christ. Well, he was so excited about his new faith that he gathered his family together. And they wanted to follow Christ. They were as intrigued as he was, but they were afraid of the Islamic backlash in the village. So Rehan, imagine this. He arranged a meeting with the town leaders. He showed them the Jesus film, which he had gotten from the trucker. He shared his testimony. And in this way, the 17-year-old led his family and his entire village of 60 people to faith in Christ. This sort of thing is happening all over the world right now. And the Bible says we cannot know the day or hour of our Lord's return. But the headlines tell us something about the times and the seasons. And while we are waiting, we've got to keep our eye on the eastern sky and tell a frightened generation about a gospel that gives hope and a Savior who is coming soon. Well, thanks for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. I'm sorry that my grandson's cat, Noodle, was meowing in the background. You might have heard her. Just think of it as a bunch of amens to everything I was saying. And remember to check out my book, The 50 Final Events in World History, available now for pre-order wherever you order books. And check out all of our other resources at robertjmorgan.com. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media, audio editing by Courtney Warner, uh, print editing and blog posting by Sherry Anderson and Luke Tyler, 
Music by Elijah Rowe. And thank you for listening. May God be with you until we meet again.